Welcome to Embedded Edge with Knitting, a podcast that brings to life the stories behind today's embedded systems, technologies, and products. It's the show where you'll hear from both engineers and executives on some of the most topical news and most pressing challenges in the world of embedded system design. Here's your host, Editor-in-Chief of Embedded.com, Nitin Dahad. Hello. Welcome to this edition of Embedded Edge with Nitin. In this issue, we look at two areas which are more and more in the news these days. One is the proliferation of companies developing cores in and supporting the RISC-V ecosystem. And the other hotly talked about topic is brain-inspired computing. One of the key announcements we covered recently is the news that MIPS is pivoting to delivering RISC-V-based products for high-performance processing and revealed the first of its RISC-V-based multiprocessor IP core products, the Evo Core 8700 and i8500. MIPS said the main reason it chose RISC-V is because the adoption cost of software is lower and this helps accelerate product development for customers. CEO Desi Benato said, with this transition to RISC-V, MIPS is targeting the high-performance segment of the processor market. With this news and the recent RISC-V summit in Paris, we took the opportunity to discuss progress in the RISC-V ecosystem with Callista Redmond, CEO of RISC-V International, in the first segment of this podcast. In the second segment of our podcast, we turn to brain-inspired computing and talk to Steve Pawlowski, who heads up Micron's Advanced Computing Solutions Group. The fact is, modern computing systems consume far too much energy to deliver the artificial intelligence-based systems we are heading towards, and nowhere near the efficiency of the brain in terms of compute performance per watt. Pawlowski believes that to truly scale, AI needs to be much more efficient, and that we can start by taking our cues from the computing device that is the human brain. He says the brain is actually a large memory machine that actually does compute, and that's where the notion of brain-inspired computing comes in. At Micron, he's leading the work on looking at how we move compute closer to data rather than moving data closer to compute. It's a long-term program at Micron, where they are looking at how far we can potentially go in terms of driving compute and memory and really get to the energy efficiencies of a biological system. Collocating memory and computing will drive performance per watt efficiencies, but at the same time, the solution needs to be easy to program. The talk with Palowski is fascinating in terms of the understanding of some of the program targets, both short-term and longer-term, and how quickly we can get to brain-inspired computing, and what are the milestones that can be reached. So let's head to our first guest, Callista Redmond, CEO of RISC-V International. Hi, Callista. How are you? Great. Thanks so much for having me here, Nitin. It's great to see you again. Tell me, um, it's two years since we last met at uh, the High Performance Computing Summit in uh, Bologna in Italy. I guess a lot has happened uh, since then. Give us a little bit of an update where we are. I have to say that I have been surprised and delighted by how quickly the industry has taken off on RISC-V. And I'm not just talking about a single stakeholder. 
but we're really focused on stakeholders around uh, the entire uh, community from those who are drafting innovative ideas to those who are producing and consuming them on the other side. It's really been fun. Um, yeah, let me just plant a seed here with you. These are, th these are some numbers, two, four, eight, 12. And there should be a pattern here, but that pattern has been blown up and we'll, we'll get to that in a minute. Okay. Uh, but you know, really, really things are taking off. Okay, you, you gave those numbers, what do they mean? I'll tell you, I'll tell you that in a little bit, but, but let, me, <laughs> let me just explain to you that risk five in our membership continues to grow and we continue to grow evenly and broadly. You know? So we, we continue to have about a third of our membership in North America, about a third in uh, Europe and another third in APAC. And that is a rich community ranging from uh, students and engineers and university all the way through to entrepreneurs and multinationals. Uh, this is a fantastic uh, play for venture capitalists. In fact, we have venture capitalists on our board now uh, who are putting together billion dollar funds to do nothing but risk five. Uh, so we have those types of interests. We have interests across the entire compute spectrum. Uh, those range from you know, the smallest, lowest power embedded uh, type processors and microprocessors our uh, uh, microcontrollers, uh, all the way up to uh, multi-threaded, uh, high-performance processors that are being uh, you know, pulled together for the most demanding workloads and everything in between. So it's really exciting. So our membership uh, last year alone grew at 132%. We now have more than 2,700 members. Uh, right. And that is just a catapult from uh, where we began. If you look at it um, historically, we've, we're, we're breaking those barriers all the time. Uh, you know, there have been around 50 different microprocessor architectures. And just as recently as 2020, um, you know, the world really was 99% uh, on two of them, uh, you know, x86 and ARM. And that is quickly changing for a couple of reasons. Uh, first, you have uh, an expanded opportunity. So that opportunity and the explosion in the number of uh, corners where people are putting processors continues uh, at a very rapid clip. You know, you probably have processors in your toothbrush if you're taking the fancy path. I personally don't take the fancy path with my toothbrush. Uh, but, you know, so you continue to have this explosion in the number of places that we're putting processors because there's a lot of data and data is king, right? So we're continuing to make business decisions, safety decisions based on data. So you look at industries like automotive, there's an explosion of opportunity where there is not an entrenched current legacy provider across all of those new domains. So we're really looking at a lot of greenfield opportunity and for business as well as technical reasons, a lot of those uh, choices are uh, being made for in favor of risk five. Let me just pause there. I've just given you a whole pile of information. All very nice uh, having um, sort of increased membership, whatever. I mean, I think we've talked about this before. What I'm sort of interested in is, you know, what are the real successes and you know, what are the challenges, I guess? Because membership is great. It just shows there's interest. 
we've had uh, obviously the, um, the the situation with the sort of the acquisition uh, Nvidia and ARM over the last two years, which now has dropped. And I know you were all very positive when that news came out because of the potential lack of um, independence that ARM would have then. But that argument gone now, and I think yeah, where 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 is the argument sitting now? Right. So. How does membership translate into actual adoption, I think, is where that first yes. piece is. And so you're bringing me straight back to 24812. So, right, you, you, walked, you walked right into, uh, into the limelight there. Um, so, you know, we sat down uh, late 2021 and said, well, how, how many cores are actually, uh, you know, happening on risk five? How many are in market today? You know, I could look around and say, well, there are about 2 million that are going out every month in uh, some of the uh, earbuds that I talked about. You know, we, we saw that happening. And then, uh, you know, so we, we did sort of a back of the envelope or somewhere on a napkin over lunch one day. Uh, and we came up with the number that we thought there were about 2 billion risk five cores in market in 2021. And then, you know, our friends over at Deloitte, they said, well, the market for RISC-V processors course is going to double in 2022 from where it was in 2021. So we all got really excited. We said, oh, sweet. In 2022, we're going to have 4 billion cores. And then they said, that's going to double again in 2023. So now we got to 8, 8 billion cores. So there's your 248. But what happened to 12? Well, here's what happened. My friends over at Andy's, you know, they were part of this discussion. Uh, but it, then in December, they said, oh, you know what? We went back and sharpened our pencils and, and we figured out that we actually had 3 billion all by ourselves, 3 billion risk five course in 2021 by that, you know, company by themselves. Well, then in March, they said, you know what? We, we went back and took a closer look. We actually did 10 billion. I said, all right, so you got 10 billion plus this 2 billion. We're now at 12 billion risk five cores. So the, the, the story here is that we're always wrong. And we're delightfully wrong because we're constantly trying to measure how much adoption is actually happening. And from what we can see and what's visible to us, there's more than that. That's what we're learning. So there there are at least 12 billion RISC-V cores in the market already. And we're seeing that gradually move across the entire compute spectrum. Now, most companies, most engineers do not get to go in and say, hey, you know what, let's rip out that architecture we've invested millions of dollars and hundreds of engineers in. They don't get to say that. Let's replace that with RISC-V. That's a really tough argument to make, both technically as well as financially for a company. But what they do get to say is, can I go after this differentiator in AI or uh, some acceleration or machine learning aspect to add on to my enterprise cloud um, you know, portfolio? Can I, can I add that competitive value and can I go build that in RISC-V? Yeah, they get permission to do that. Uh, okay. so that's where we're seeing a lot of growth. Are you seeing, you might have a perspective on this, a lot of stuff is quite often heterogeneous. So it is multiple cores, and especially with 
you know, companies like Intel sort of going sort of heterogeneous and you know, supporting all, all the different architectures. Yeah. Um, are you seeing a lot of that? Yeah, no, we are seeing a lot of that. I haven't seen very many, you know, combos of uh, x86 together with ARM. I'm seeing ARM together with RISC-V. There is a both-and approach and a both-and investment uh, scenario that we're seeing play out. Um, mm. You know, you heard that from uh, Jensen over at NVIDIA. Uh, mm. when the news first broke that they were pursuing ARM in the first place. And folks said, That's well, right. what about this RISC-V strategy? And he said, yeah, we're continuing with that. No change in plan. And NVIDIA has continued to be a great uh, RISC-V citizen ever since. Uh, they continue you know, on track, on course uh, within our community. And that's a, you know, that's a real pleasure to see. And, you know, and, and when, when you look back about 20 years to 2001, there was a, uh, you know, sort of the initial investments going on in Linux. And that was a really exciting time because at that point, 20 years ago, Linux was still this like crazy idea. Like who's gonna, who's gonna do that when you've got this rock solid option coming from Microsoft? And IBM stood up and, you know, they have their own software portfolio, massive part of their business. They stood up and planted a flag that had a billion dollars on it and said, you know what? Open source is, is going to be what the future is pinned on. So they, they planted that flag 20 years ago. And yeah, you know what? Uh, that fortune's come true. Linux really underpins the most important uh, systems in the world today. If you... Uh, want to get on an airplane, if you want to go to an ATM machine, if you want to <laughs> you know, transact on world markets, all of that is on Linux, right? Yeah. And so that that came true. And, you know, uh, IBM didn't lose uh, any business for it. In fact, I think they grew their business because they became a huge proponent of an open, open society, open collaboration, work together with an ecosystem uh, rather than compete with it. And, uh, you know, earlier this year, in February, February 7th, Intel planted a billion-dollar flag on RISC-V. So, uh, you know, a lot of folks are saying this is our Linux moment. We, as RISC-V, are the open option, as Linux was, to software. RISC-V is to hardware. So this is a, you know, it's been a pivotal point in our history where we're seeing, you know, one of the most successful um, architecture uh, holders in Intel saying, you know what, there's a both-and opportunity here. You know? Okay. What would you say were the highlights for the, of the uh, RISC-V week in Paris? What are the key things that uh, you, 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 you saw? Yeah. So, you know, RISC-V week is such an amazing opportunity for us to finally see each other in person and build those deeper relationships that in Europe have really been uh, foundational in a public and private uh, corporate uh, perspective. So what I mean by that is the European Commission is investing millions of euros in a, uh, you know, a, a play to say, you know, they, they call it technical sovereignty. And I want to like pivot that discussion, and we've succeeded wildly in pivoting that discussion to say, 
you know, yes, it's so important to build and foster a local technical economy, especially taking an open, proven approach in both software and hardware to become a global technical leader. And that global piece is founded on the notion of open collaboration, right? So Europe, uh, what you're seeing in, what you've seen in Paris is about that open technical collaboration to build technical leadership in Europe to participate in those global opportunities. And those global opportunities are really important. It not only is about your uh, supply chain, uh, but it's about your development partners and everything that comes into your product as well as where you can take your product. So you want global opportunity, global markets, global um, you know, adjacent markets to you know, some of your core inventions. And that's where taking that open approach is really proving true. You know, that's where you can have that open collaboration among the automotive sector. So we've heard a lot about automotive and that starts to bridge into you know, space and uh, uh, you know, other aeronautical uh, endeavors that we see going on. Yeah, so that kind of started with the European Processor Initiative has begun to build even more readily through the many calls that the European Commission has made. Now you're sitting in the UK and I'm sitting in Switzerland. And yes, there's room for us to all participate in many of these calls as well. Uh, so it is a huge um, vote of confidence for uh, us as RISC-V to see that level of collaboration. So there's, there's that. Uh, we're also continuing to build on uh, the strength that um, Europe has brought to high-performance computing. And that's something that has been you know, growing for decades. And see an infusion of open hardware in that through Barcelona, through some of the activities at ETH, uh, has been another testament to the growth and progress that we're making. Next, we turn to Steve Palowski, Vice President of Advanced Computing Solutions at Micron. Steve, good to meet you. Tell us about your remit at Micron. The whole focus of, and the reason I came to Micron was the fact that as we were, because you know, I was leading the Exascale project at Intel, or my team, my team was working on it. And the biggest challenge we had wasn't necessarily getting more compute. It was... The fact that we most of the energy spent in a computer and spent in those machines is moving data back and forth. And so the real focus in coming to Micron, the focus has been how do we keep data resident and how do we do, you know, instead of moving data closer to compute, how do we move compute closer to data? And when you start looking at a um, projects that go from just, you know, put more memory closer to the compute, you know, either the logic device, put it on top of the logic device, or even look at solutions like processing and memory where you can put different device structures inside the memory device itself. As you start getting closer and closer to the memory, you are getting more and more into the analog domain. And you're starting to have to deal with not only the extremely low voltage levels, but, you know, thermal noise that gets created, et cetera. However, the benefit you get is the best we can do in logic, you know, and when you compare it to the brain itself, the best you can do in logic in terms of energy efficiency is roughly five orders of magnitude higher 
than what a biological computer can do, you know, a, a human, you know, the human brain. And so the only way that you can get down to those levels is through extreme, extreme analog processing and be able to compensate for the inefficiencies of, um, you know, because you're going to have thermal noise, you're going to have just trans, you know, variations in your devices, and you have to be able to figure out ways to be able to compensate for that. And that really means, and that's where brain inspired comes in. The brain is actually a large memory machine that actually does compute. There are different functions of the brain that are organized, you know, where the neurons are organized to handle different types of algorithms. So in coming here and looking at how far we can potentially go in terms of driving compute and memory and really get to the inefficiency or get to the uh, energy efficiencies, uh, compute efficiencies of a biological system. It really is focusing on, all right, what are the algorithms that we can actually do instead of trying to build a piece of hardware and then give it to people and say, okay, we've kind of figured something out go program it. It's really, what are the types of functions we would want to do in here? And then how do we build the circuits and the capabilities to try to mimic those in a biological standpoint, but still allow people to be able to use it as they use uh, systems today? What you're implying are things like computing memory. It's something that a lot of people are trying to do, including Subhashish Mitra at Stanford. He's also doing that. Yeah, he's the one who's been looking at um, heterogeneous stacking as well. The most efficiency you can get is to put the compute right next to the, the, the little level of compute that you're doing right next to the memory cell, you know, kind of essentially like the, like, like the brain does. Connections will fire and those connections create relationships and that's where the real computing is. But, you know, you have memory and that's why neural networks have been so a big part of the focus in terms of our systems research at, at Micron. Um, you know, it's been a big focus because it really is. Here's how we model how the brain works, you know, how a neuron fires and the types of computation. And so how much of this information can you actually put into a memory device and have it behave? It, you know, it won't be as efficient. You know, you won't get the same performance efficiency you could get in high-speed logic from the compute side. But if I'm like the brain and I only run at a kilohertz or two kilohertz or 100 kilohertz, but I've got, you know, billions and billions of these things firing at the same time, what kind of benefit can I see? Our goal eventually is to take neural network models and see how those models could effectively be, be mapped into something where we can put a little bit of compute next to next to a memory cell. Now, what, what that means is it doesn't become a memory in the true sense of the word as we use it today. It really becomes a computer. When you say computer, it's computer integrated with the memory or computer in memory? Yeah, it's really, uh, it's really compute in memory. Okay. When I first came to Micron, they were working on what I thought was probably one of the most innovative solutions that, I, that I'd seen, which was the automata, process, automata processor. And essentially, they were they created, or I should say, we created, but it was done before me. Mm. Essentially, a large regu- regular expression engine that could be reconfigured that in a memory process, and it was inspired by the massive, you know, the the memory array, how the memory, how DRAM is is built, and the large array size, and they inferred that boy, we can if we organize this in a different way, but we leverage that basic concept, kind of like what a you know what a biological system does we can get massive amounts of computing done and have it do just certain problems. It may be a string search or something like that. 
And it really was a very, very good technology. The biggest issue that we had at the time was it was difficult to program. So, you know, the, so the team that built that actually spun out of the company and they've been working on bringing that to market. It's that kind of concept. But what that meant was you couldn't get it. You couldn't buy that chip and use it as a DRAM device. You had to buy it and use it as a computer. I mean, it really was a computational device. It was just built out of memory instead of logic, and it was built to do certain functions. Really so you well. needed different tools. Different tools and a different programming model. And even when you take a new capability, like when we added a new feature in a pro, well, when Intel IA architecture went from 32-bit to 64-bit, mm. it takes eight to 10 years for the software to catch up. And mm. the only reason it, it was successful is they put the 64-bit semantics in the part and let the software developers start to develop, but you can still run your 32-bit code on those yes. parts. And so asking somebody to do a wholesale change, just go from point A to point B, it's going to be extremely difficult when you have to, you have to show a significant value proposition and, and recognize that it's going to take a lot of time for the software to catch up to the hardware. The increment has to, in, in sort of a change, has to be in proportion with the, the value you get uh, on, on each step. Absolutely. So in a lot of the work that we're doing, we're looking at how can we do it in baby steps? What are some things we can do in memory quickly that basically, you know, we can basically, like when you look at C runtime primitives, are there primitives like that that you can do through an API where the programmer can actually make a call to the API and then the, the actual execution of those particular functions can happen in the compute memory element? learn from that and then try to build on that capability. So, you know, the work that we're doing in the pathfinding is actually we're on a 10 to 15 year path and we'll eventually start bringing out features in those devices over over time. But it's, it's, it, we're thinking long-term here in terms of what it's going yeah. to be. In that 10 to 15 year path, where are you right now? And what can somebody do to improve the efficiency of uh, some of the brain sort of near what? Well, right, neuromorphic computing. Yeah, right now I would say we're on a, um, we're probably on year three or four. We have through an acquisition and some work we've been doing with a small company, we actually have a capability we call Micron's Deep Learning Accelerator. And we're, you know, we're using that as the basis of, because we have a software framework and we're using that as a basis of okay, if we first start, if we first start going down this particular path, how far can we take that architecture even to the point where we can integrate it inside a memory device, and so we can do some level of AI uh, in the device itself, but leverage the same software infrastructure. So people that are, you know, we, we have people that are using it today in 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 POCs, and eventually, you know, that's that that was the beauty of the IA architecture was code you wrote 30 years ago worked on a processor yet today. And so the idea is, can somebody in the work they're doing now that they're doing on an FPGA, can they eventually migrate that work over the memory without having to rip everything up and, and, and start all over? Which and, is what you're working on. Yeah, yeah, we've got we've we've got work in pathfinding in terms of you know what does it take to be able to do something like that. Now the difficulty of that is if you keep the memory separate and even if you integrate compute in the memory, you're burning area. 
you know, so it's increasing the overall cost of the device. So if you want to use it as a straight memory device, you're incurring costs. But we're just using it as a learning tool to see, okay, does, you know, how does this make sense? And then when do we start introducing some more biological type of computation, and, but still try to preserve the same programming interface that individuals will, will, will need? I guess then, are there any sort of implementations that you've done as part of this journey right now? Well, we've done things that <clears throat> most of the stuff that we're working on now are just our test heads in the lab. We haven't really, I mean, you know, we haven't done anything that we put out and say, okay, look at this. I mean, we're, we'll, we'll get to that point and, and we'll get to that point really soon. But most of it is what we're trying to figure out what we can do in the lab itself and, and where our limitations are. And what, what have you seen that's like uh, surprised you or made you think, okay, this is a good sign? I never thought that you could do much computing in a DRAM trend with DRAM transistors because, you know, they're, they're, they're not as efficient as logic devices. You know, and, but when you try to compare them to a logic device, the, you know, in terms of efficiency, you'd always say, no, you don't want to go do that. But in terms of the overall, that there are solutions out there that could use if you had a single device that had the compute and the memory all together. For example, you know, you can put one of these devices at the end of a, um, you know, in the sensor. And even a battery-operated sensor that say it woke up every three minutes to do something and then went to sleep or every, you know, just you know, say say it's taking pictures of stock shelves or things like that. It's amazing how I didn't expect that we would be able to map a lot of that logic inside the DRAM and do it as efficiently as we can. Now, there are other companies like UpM and others that have been touting this for some time, but you know, I think there's a lot farther that we can go. Also, the the big epiphany is our big focus is let's just not, as I mentioned before, let's not build the hardware. We need to understand the algorithms, understand how the networks are evolving. You know, transformers seem to be all the rage for the large language problems now and because of the, the attention. And what's interesting is, is the what they call arithmetic efficiency, the amount of compute to to uh, memory bandwidth that you need changes depending on the size of the sequence. I mean, it goes from needing a lot of memory if you're only just you know checking forwards in a sequence, you know, you go from needing a lot of memory bandwidth with respect to the amount of compute to on the other end, if you go to 120, 256 words that you're looking at a sequence, compute just dominates. And so then the question becomes, okay, how do you how do you look at a system that you're going to build in memory? And be able to be able to address both ends of the spectrum. You know, if somebody's going to be able to use this in some type of you know language model that sits out on the edge, or maybe even they build it with thousands of devices. So the biggest, the second biggest epiphany you know I have had is we have to focus on the algorithms and understand what's happening there and how those algorithms are going to evolve, because that's going to inform the architecture rather than the other way around. Are these something you're doing, like you're simulating this on some systems? Yes, uh, yes. they're strictly in sim, you know, simulating the systems now. But the advantage is, is we have good device models you know, for the memory for the DRAM. And by the way, I will also say DRAM is still a great technology. For, you know, when I was at Intel, I predicted, you know, a, a friend of uh, one of my colleagues predicted that um, you know, DRAM only had 10 years of life left. And as I still look at it, that 10 years continues, you know, that 10 year limit still <laughs> tends to slip out. So 
So it's um, so we have good device models for the DRAM. We have good device models for our CMOS transistors, and we're starting to grow our capability in terms of uh, data scientists and algorithm expertise. And we've been focusing on, you know, we've been doing some work with CERN and um, with you know a cancer research lab. We're starting to build out, you know, some of our, uh, you know, some other areas. We're looking for any type of um, opportunity to collaborate to learn on the algorithm level because that's where and you know that's our biggest deficit is you know we don't have the soft as much of the software and the algorithmic expertise to do something like this that i would like okay. we're slowly building it but it's hard to convince somebody to come to a hardware company i had the same problem at intel come to a hardware company and go do something when they think well all you do is x and so why would i do that so what did, what do you expect to see in the next two years i know this uh a bigger path, you know, 10 to 15 years, but in two years, you'll be on you know, year five. What, what do you expect to have achieved? I actually see us actually demonstrating this capability, you know, some of these capabilities and, you know, and not more than just writing papers, but demonstrating here is some, here are some potential opportunities that um, in not, you know, not only, like I said, not only writing papers and, and saying, well, look, we, we did this and somebody went to try to use it and they said it's good for this or it's good for that. But actually trying to address it for a couple of, of uh, use cases. Now, they would mm. still be proof of concept because it wouldn't be something that you could get out yeah. to the, you know, in the general public. But I think there's going to be a lot more physical realization. There's going to be a physical realization of some of the stuff we're doing. And I'm only looking at it, okay, there's going to be, you know, like I said, a 15-year program. The first two or three are going to, we're going to fail miserably in some ways, you know, but we're going to learn so much and continue to build on those and build on that foundation. And then eventually in 10 to 15 years, I do see if we continue down this particular path, I do see a renaissance in terms of how, you know, how computing and and I'll say either biologically inspired computing is going to be a bigger part of our infrastructure computing today. And when I say infrastructure computing, we we'll, we rely a lot on you know communications processing, you know five G, you know six G, you know all our communication. I think we're going to start to see biologically inspired capabilities start to take over in those key areas that you know we don't even think about today. You know, and they'll grow organically, and then eventually it can become the mainstream computing that everybody talks about. But I see it growing organically in, in little areas where it can have a big impact and then build over time. Steve, um, that's uh, a very good point to end on. Thank you very much. Thank you. It was a pleasure meeting you. So that brings us to the end of this episode. That was Embedded Edge with Nitin, and I'm Nitin Dahad. Thanks for listening. <laughs>